Hi there, everyone. It's really a privilege and an honor for me to be sharing with you the last in this powerful series, Family Life Boosters. So it's Family Life Boosters number eight, and we're going to be talking about letting go, letting go. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you speak to us today. We pray, Lord, that you minister to your people and that you really strengthen our family lives. Lord, we open ourselves to you. Come, Holy Spirit, you are teacher. Come and equip us, Lord to be able to let go. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Carolyn Miller stated that unforgiveness is a poison that shrivels the heart. It means a person cannot truly live in the present as they're always thinking about the past. You see, for family life to thrive, we must fully enjoy the present. And many of us don't because we're still locked up in the past. In family life, there will always be many opportunities to let go and forgive. Some common ones are breaking trust, violation of boundaries, emotional and sexual abuse, bullying, favoritism, financial neglect, emotional abuse, emotional distance, so many different things. Sometimes it's in simple everyday matters where we have to learn to forgive. For example, unresponsiveness to WhatsApps or texts or calls for dinner time when you keep calling your kids or calling your spouse and they don't pitch up and you feel dishonored, a spouse who's consistently late for dates or late for church, our loved ones forgetting about what our preferences actually are in terms of food or movies and then we feel like Hey, what's going on? I know one of our kids is like that. If we forget that he prefers this drink to this drink, he gets quite uptight, okay? And he feels like, don't people care about my preferences? I've said this many times, okay? So these are normal things that happen, but it requires us to learn to let go, to learn to forgive. Have you ever wondered why some people struggle with letting go more than others? There's some people who really hold grudges and there are other people who just move on. In this message, I'm going to suggest to you some things that will make letting go a bit easier for you. You see, forgiving and letting go doesn't excuse the behavior of the perpetrator. This is so important. And I'm telling you right now, there will always be opportunities to take offense, but keep choosing to let go. But it does not excuse what the person has actually done to you. So let's make sure that even when we cry out for personal justice, social justice, we do so from a pure heart. Yes, justice is important, but we must make sure that we're not taking revenge, that our hearts are pure. In the words of Wayne uh, Gerard Trotman, uh, he's a filmmaker, cries for justice are often the bitter laments of the vengeful. Cries for justice are often the bitter laments of the vengeful. So let's be conscious of this as we talk about this. My primary focus in this message is the state of your heart. That's what I'm interested in. This is not a message about those who are hurting you and what they're doing wrong, right? It's about the state of your heart. And um, the essence of this sermon is how do I make sure I'm not controlled negatively and ultimately destroyed by my immature, infantile, and fleshly reactions to my pain. This is so crucial. 
So let's talk about these 10 practices. 10 practices I want to share with you. Of course, there are many more, but I want to share with you 10 practices that can help you to let go. Are you ready for them? The first one is meditate on God's goodness. Meditate on God's goodness. We know that to meditate biblically is to utter and to mutter. It's to fill your heart, to fill your mind with God's truth, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 19, it says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Watch this not counting people's sin against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. If you're a true reconciler, this is so important, not counting people's sin against them. So the nature of God, the way he has been toward us, his goodness toward us is he did not count our sin against us. You see, so part of this is recognizing that God can take a mess and he can turn it into a message. So important. He can turn your pain into progress. And that's what his goodness actually does to us. Okay. He's the God who turns tragedy into triumph. Reflect on your pain and see what opportunity there is for God to turn it around for his glory. So that it's a story for his glory. When you meditate on his goodness, you're able to focus in on his goodness, even in negative situations. You're able to look at the opportunity in a calamity. In Genesis 50, verses 15 through to 20, we see Joseph doing this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. It's interesting, his brothers thought that Joseph would be like they were, okay? Because they bore a grudge against him because their father liked him more, right? So they assumed that he would be like that. Isn't that interesting about human nature, right? It says, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus, you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of, your, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, watch this, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? In other words, if I'm this person who's out to punish you, out to take revenge, I'm putting myself in God's place. Okay, and that's prideful. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. His concern was actually for them. He saw how guilty they looked, how guilty they felt. And he said, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He looked at the opportunity in a calamity. He saw the goodness of God, even though he had experienced much pain and rejection. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I'm just amazed by Joseph. He had such a heart, God's heart towards his family members, towards his brothers. 
And he didn't just say, I forgive you. He actually spoke kindly to them. He spoke provision to them. And that's so, so important. I'm going to touch on that in a while. You see, I want to encourage you, surprise those that have harmed you by displaying to them the heart of a good God. Think of people who've done evil to you. Surprise them with the goodness of God. Surprise them with the goodness of God that you keep meditating on. You see, you're full of the goodness of God. Surprise them with it. God has been good to you and God has been good to them. And that needs to manifest even in times where we've been hurt by people. The second practice I would like you to work on, please, is embrace it as an instruction from Jesus. The whole thing of letting go and forgiving is a command. You know, Jesus taught in parables and he also taught with commands. If you just look at the teachings of Jesus, very often it's a parable or it's a command. And we need to understand this in Matthew 18, 21 to 22. This is not a suggestion coming from Jesus. For our own good, he's commanding us. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And if we want to understand how numbers work in the Bible, you know that seven is the number of completion and perfection. And when a number is reinforced like this, you know, some translations say 70 times seven. Here it says 77 times. It's just reinforcing that it should be perfect and complete forgiveness. And I think it's so interesting because it shows that your brother can sin against you multiple times, many times. And Jesus here says, we need to forgive. This is a command and it's not a suggestion. And Jesus tells us to forgive for our own good. You see, he had our best interests at heart when he gave us this instruction. So we should be curious. We should be asking ourselves, why? Why was Jesus so particular about this? Here's another practice that will help you when it comes to letting go. The third one is this, recognize what your unforgiveness is doing to you. You see, Jesus knows what we're like as human beings and he knows the power of unforgiveness. Each time you find yourself harboring resentment or bitterness, ask yourself, is this helping me or is this harming me? Is this contributing to my family or is it contaminating my family? Is it making me more Christ-like or not? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. Wisdom is judged by her fruit. And many people who don't forgive, they think they're being wise. But look at the fruit of their unforgiveness. In Hebrews 12 verse 15, it says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You see, very often when you don't let go, when you don't forgive, you become resentful and the resentment turns into bitterness. And what does bitterness do? It defiles you and you end up doing certain things you never thought you would ever do. If you look at different types of anger, one of the types of anger is a type of anger where you have calculated revenge, where bitterness builds up and you end up doing certain things to people. Think of all the crimes of passion you hear of today. End up doing certain things to people that you never thought you would ever do. Okay, that's why we say hurt people, hurt others. Okay, often they do so because they've been defiled by their own bitterness. Okay, very important to understand this. 
Make sure your unforgiveness doesn't become a bitter root judgment. Happens to a lot of people, right? Bitter root judgments, it's where in pride we say, I'll never be like that. How could that person have done that? And then you end up doing the very same thing. We see it happening a lot. People grew up with fathers who abused them and then the abused person becomes an abuser later on. The victim becomes the perpetrator later on because of bitter root judgments. A lot of times people make inner vows because of their unforgiveness. I will never do business with those people again. And then God wants to bless you through those type of people. And what happens? You rob yourself of the blessing because your life is now being controlled by that inner vow that you have made. Let me tell you something. Maybe you think that letting go is a sign of weakness, but ultimately you end up destroying yourself. And that's why it's been said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping your enemy will die. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping your enemy will die. The fourth practice I'd like you to embrace, please, is understand God's heart toward those that show mercy. There's a blessing from God when you are merciful. It's so important. God wants us to be like him. Do you know that? God wants us to be just like him and he's merciful. In Luke 6 verse 36, it says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. That's his nature. Mercy triumphs over judgment, ladies and gentlemen. In the book of Psalms 145 verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And he's called us to be like that. As you relate to your family members, be slow to anger and rich in love. Not average in love, not mediocre in love, but rich, abounding in love. In Matthew 5 verse 7, blessed are the merciful. So there's a blessing on you when you're merciful. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. I don't know about you, but I need mercy. I need God's grace on my life. It's interesting when you study that word mercy in scripture, in the Hebrews, the word has said, which is a covenantal word actually, right? Based on God's promise, based on God's covenant with you. I think it's just so powerful. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 9 to 13, it says this. This is so, so amazing, this passage, right? This is to do with Solomon's request to God when God was saying to him, you know, well, what would you like? He says, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, okay, wisdom, and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? So he made that request because he was humble and he knew that he needed God's help, right? To lead such a great people. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So there's certain prayers that please God. There's certain requests we make that actually please God. Now, what was God pleased with, right? So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life, or wealth for yourself. Now watch this. Nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice. Then there were the blessings. I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor so that in your lifetime, you will have no equal among kings. 
One of the key things that God mentions here is, I'm pleased with the fact that you have not asked for the death of your enemies. Now think of the number of times we tend to wish ill upon someone. God doesn't like that. Okay, God loves it when we cry out for mercy. We cry out for his mercy, even on behalf of other people. And yet today, a lot of people are very enthusiastic, very enthusiastic when it comes to, oh, I wish this will happen to this person, negative things. But God was pleased with Solomon because he didn't ask for the death of his enemies. And I think that's a very powerful uh, statement that we see here. And he calls us to be the same so see the benefits of being a merciful person. There's a blessing upon you for being merciful. The fifth practice is actively function in the opposite spirit. Actively function in the opposite spirit. Crucial, crucial, crucial. Sometimes we've got this thing where we think, well, I wasn't horrible back to them, so God is pleased with me. Well, I didn't retaliate. So God is pleased with me. But God understands that in order for us to be completely free in our souls, when people hurt us, we need to actively do good toward them. That's why in Luke chapter 6, verse 28, it says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It doesn't say, hey, just don't do anything back to them. Right? It says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And isn't it amazing how Joseph practiced this with his brothers, didn't he, right? He showed them kindness. He didn't just say, okay, I won't kill them off, you know. Okay, um, I, I'll just ignore them. No, he communicated kindly to them. Don't be afraid, he said, all right? So I want to encourage you, don't lower your standards based on how you've been treated. Many people have got this thing. I see it when I counsel couples and I say, you guys have lowered your standards. Can you see you were never like this, but because of what your husband did to you, now you're like this. Because of what your wife did to you, now you're like this. You guys have lowered your standards. And for those of you who are married, just remember marriage is, is um, covenantal, right? So I do what I do to my wife, not because of what she's just done to me or hasn't done, but because that's what I promised to do. And a lot of marriages go downhill, becomes this downward spiral uh, relationships simply because we lower our standards based on how the other person is toward us. And then our marriages become very contractual, you know, because you've done your 50%, I'll also do my 50%. Oh, you didn't play your part, I won't play my part. That is not a biblical marriage, okay? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Let's not enable the abuse. Let's not enable the negativity. The sixth practice is work on your own flaws first. Work on your own flaws first. One of the things I've found in my life is the moment I start being critical towards someone, I've asked the Holy Spirit, Lord, bring to remembrance my own flaws. And it's so interesting. If I'm about to criticize my wife concerning a particular thing, I've never had an experience where I look at myself and then I think, oh, but I've never made that same mistake. Oh, I never do that. Okay. Everything I'm about to criticize her for, I've also done. And when you recognize your own flaws, it changes the way you speak to someone. In Matthew 7, verse 3 to 5, it says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You see, that's deception, isn't it? 
Okay, we become conceited. What is conceit? Conceit is where you view yourself more highly than you ought. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In the book of Psalms 139 verses 23 to 24, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a very powerful prayer to pray. Some translations say, search my heart, O Lord, and see if there's any wickedness within me. Once we are aware of our own wickedness, once we're aware of our own flaws, it changes the way in which we forgive or don't forgive. It changes the degree to which we're willing to let go. In the book of um, Psalms 23 and 24, I want to read it from the message. It says, investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. I want to encourage you, uh, embrace this as a regular prayer that you pray over your life. Now, many people struggle to let go other people's wrongdoing because they overestimate their own righteousness. In essence, they're conceited. They're conceited, all right? And David's prayer here in Psalm 139 is actually a powerful antidote to conceit. It's a powerful antidote to conceit. I want to encourage you to keep praying that particular prayer. I like the words of Wayne uh, Gerard Trotman. He said, one of the most devastating symptoms of pride is the unwillingness to forgive. One of the most devastating symptoms of pride is the unwillingness to forgive. Are you so proud that you can't forgive? The seventh practice I would like you to embrace is this. Recognize the consequences of being judgmental. You see, many people are very critical. It becomes a habit. They're so used to criticizing everyone. They've positioned themselves with the pseudo identity of I'm the wise judge. And they say certain things that are very concerning. And it's probably because they're not fully aware of the consequences of being judgmental. In James chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There are consequences to being judgmental. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, it says, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I can't afford in my life to be judgmental and critical. I need God's grace in my life. And you see, if I don't realize that I need God's grace in my life, that I can do it all on my own, I'm a self-made man, guess what? I will be critical and judgmental. But understanding the spiritual principle that with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Let me tell you something. It won't necessarily be measured back to you immediately. It might be later on in life. When you understand this, it changes how you view other people's flaws. I'm not saying you don't correct people. I'm not saying you don't discipline your children, but you do it with a heart that understands that, you know what? 
Were it not for God's grace, where would I be? You see, when you become judgmental, the grace that has kept you may lift and you may end up having to rely on your own resources to sustain yourself. This is why many people who preach strongly against certain sins, albeit in self-righteousness, they end up failing in that very same area. It's okay to preach against certain things, but don't do it from a place of self-righteousness. Don't do it from a place of judgment, self-righteous judgment. Be very careful of that. Okay? Why? With the same measure you've used against others, it could be measured back to you. We need God's grace. Amen. The eighth practice I'd like you to embrace is walk in love. Walk in love. Every born-again Christian has access to God's love. You have the ability to love people with God's love. I love Romans 5 verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Isn't that amazing? The love of God, some translations read like this, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through His Spirit. If you've got the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not just for power. The Holy Spirit sheds abroad God's love into our hearts so you are able to love. In 1 Peter 4 verse 8, it says, above all, okay, so it means this is important. Above all, love each other deeply. Now, let me ask you a question. The people around you, your family members, the people in your church, your spiritual family, can you safely say, I love them deeply. I love them deeply. When was the last time you said that to someone? My love to your spouse, I love you deeply. To your parents, I love you deeply. You know, um, are, are we saying that to each other? Even as men, often men feel awkward saying those kinds of things, you know. But it's a powerful statement. It's a very powerful statement. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. You know, sometimes you look at certain people in certain families and you observe them and you think, what this mother has had to go through? How does she cope? And there she is laughing with that person who did all those things to her. I'll tell you how she coped. Love. Because love covers a multitude of sin. Because you don't love that same person, you, you think to yourself, I cannot tolerate that. I cannot tolerate a child who would do that to me or who would talk to me in that particular way. Because of her love, that love has covered over a multitude of sins. And you see, people won't necessarily change. Your family members who've got those proclivities and anecdotal behavior and things that annoy you, that won't necessarily change very often, the person who has to change is you. In other words, you have to be able to cope with some of those proclivities. You see, sometimes our mindset is, when they change, that's when I'll be happy. No, don't let your happiness be based on someone else's behavior. Don't let your life be so externally referenced. Walk in love. Walk in love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. It's talking about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. You see, that's why that person can still be with that other person because they're keeping no record of wrongs. That's why that individual, you look and you think, how come they still um, have not yet disowned that child? 
Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, <clears throat> it continues and says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, I'm sure you've observed that some of these people who are very long-suffering in relation to their loved ones, right? And you've wondered, how do these people cope? It's because they've embraced the truths that I'm sharing with you from Scripture. And doesn't mean that discipline is not being exercised. It doesn't mean that correction is not being communicated. It just means that in their heart, they do not hold it against the perpetrator. Their heart remains undefiled because of that. You see, when you don't forgive someone, very often you end up partnering in their sin because you're holding their sin in your heart and you end up being defiled by that very sin that you were against and you end up doing the same thing that they've done. The ninth practice I want you to please embrace is stop playing God. Stop playing God. Remember what Joseph says? It says, am I God? Am I God that I would punish you guys? No, that's not your responsibility. There's certain things that need to be left up to God. In Romans 12 verse 19, it says, do not take revenge, my dear friends. Okay, it's an instruction. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, what is that statement? It is mine to avenge. In other words, we leave that up to God. There are times when people will come against the gospel. There are times when people will come against the advancement of the kingdom. And there are times when we need to just say, you know what? I am not going to try and punish them. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. God will deal with them as he wants to. Now, first prize is where we are crying out to God for his mercy on behalf of certain people. But just remember, sometimes it can be unsanctified mercy, okay? There are times when we cry out for God's mercy and it doesn't come through, all right? Because the person is resisting the gospel. And I'm talking about when someone is resisting the advancement of the gospel, when you're trying to advance God's kingdom and there's that resistance. You see throughout scripture, there are times when you have to actually leave it to God and just say, you know what? I'm not going to take revenge. God will deal with that person in whatever way he wants to deal with that person. Okay. You see, there are many things that people do in order to punish their family members. And this ranges from emotional withdrawal to financial manipulation to uh, gender-based violence. There are many things people do to punish family members. Ask yourself, the way I'm treating my siblings or my parents or my spouse right? Am I punishing them? Am I doing certain things because I feel like they deserve to be punished and I'm going to play God and I'm going to actually punish them? Or am I operating in the ministry of intercessor where I'm standing in the gap and I'm crying out to God on their behalf? You see, many Christians today, instead of operating as intercessors, they operate as accusers. That's the enemy. He's, the, he's described in scripture as the accuser of the brethren, all right? So let me ask you, do, do we have to let go everything or are there some things we should just give over to God? The fact is, even when you give it over to God, you're still letting go. Whether you're crying out to God for mercy on behalf of someone or surrendering the issue to God, the point is you're no longer carrying it. It's not for you to carry. Okay. Look at these scenarios from Paul's life. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm 
the Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Now that's an interesting scripture there. It seemed like Paul had some kind of revelation around how God would deal with Alexander, right? But I want to tell you something. That family member of yours isn't Alexander the metal worker, all right? So there are these unique cases we see, and at a certain point we will teach on this in more, more in depth. But in your normal family scenarios, okay, uh, we see something a bit different. Look, look at the following verse, verse 16, okay? Um, look, how, look how Paul the Apostle deals with this one, okay? This is, ex- this is the following verse. It says, at my first defense, no one came to my support. He's talking about his team. He's talking about people he had worked with. But everyone deserted me. Think of the hurt. Think of the pain. Right? And some of you have experienced that in your family setups. You've been deserted. You've been abandoned. But what does he say here? He says, may it not be held against them. So he doesn't pray for Alexander, but for his family. Right? Uh, his spiritual family, the people around him. He says, may it not be held against them. And you see elsewhere with certain people, Onesimus and others, you'll say, uh, may the Lord grant him mercy on such and such a day because of how good he was toward us. One of the prayers I've really enjoyed praying over people is releasing prayers of mercy. Lord, be merciful on so-and-so. Be merciful on this person. Be merciful. And your heart actually changes towards someone who's wronged you when you cry out to God for mercy on their behalf. The final thing I would like you to embrace is understand their ignorance. This really helps you when it comes to letting go. We see how Jesus did so and we see how Stephen also prayed to God to show mercy to certain people who had wronged them. Just watch this. This is so powerful. And it happened as they were uh, dying, basically, right? Jesus at the cross. Look at this. Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I find it interesting. He didn't just say, Father, forgive them, but he seemed to have an understanding that, wait a minute, these guys think they're doing the right thing. These guys are blinded. These guys are in ignorance, right? So, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I want to encourage you. I want to appeal to you that so many of the people who've wronged you in your family, They did it for themselves. They did it because of their own issues, their own complexities, okay? Their own uh, complications. They weren't doing it to you. They were doing it for themselves. When you understand that, it's easier to release people. In Luke chapter 7, verses 59 to 60, while they were stoning him, this is Stephen being stoned, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So he was focused on Jesus. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. I believe that Stephen was aware of what Jesus had done on the cross and the prayer that Jesus had prayed, crying out for God to be merciful toward those soldiers, toward those who were harming him. And I think it's so interesting how Stephen then emulated Jesus by saying, do not hold the sin against them. Are there people around you where you need to pray for them in that particular way? Lord, when my son was rude to me in this way, please, 
Be merciful toward him. Don't hold this against him. There's so many scriptures that speak of how we should speak to our parents. I'm seeing my son doing this. Father, please don't hold it against him. My wife, my husband, whatever your situation is, are you crying out to God to be merciful towards certain people? I've had situations where people have sworn at me or have mistreated me. I remember myself updating uh, Pastor Michael about how I was treated in one particular situation. And Pastor Michael said, May God have mercy on that person. Pastor Mike had a revelation of the type of things that happens when uh, that happen when people treat a particular person uh, in a particular way. And he says, may God have mercy on that person. I was just laughing about the situation, you know, uh, but he said, may God have mercy on that person. Okay. Um, I believe we need to be crying out for mercy for people. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, remember, often people will harm others in ignorance. They do it for themselves and not to you. They do it for themselves and not to you. Just remember that. Your maturity is seen in your ability to handle other people's immaturity. Have you noticed that? Often when people are weak in faith, they can hurt you in their immaturity. Let go. Understand that this person is immature. In the same way that if a baby vomits all over your suit, if you're holding that particular baby, if you're mature in raising children and so on, you know it's a baby. You don't go and hit the baby because they've done that, okay? In the same way, there's certain people around you who are immature, who are ignorant, who will hurt you by what they say in their own foolishness. One of the marks of maturity Maturity is seen in your ability to handle someone else's immaturity. You just let go. Hey, they're still a kid. Hey, this person is still new in the kingdom of God. They don't understand, right? Oh, this person has always been emotionally uh, immature. Oh, that person is biblically illiterate. That's why they're doing that. Let me not get caught up in that mess, all right? In Romans 14, verse 1, in the NLT, it reads, Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong because they're weak in faith. Don't get caught up in that. As we conclude this particular series, I want to leave you with this. I want to encourage you if there's anyone who you are still against, you're holding something against that person, I want you to just start thinking about that individual right now. And I'd like you to forgive them. And just remember, they might do it again. Just remember, it might be someone who you stay with, same household, someone who has that particular weakness. I want to encourage you, download the notes, go through them again and make a decision to just start practicing these things. You can do one a week, for example, but I want to encourage you to do so. Love keeps no record of wrongs. I'm not saying you mustn't address issues. If there's molestation, sexual abuse, that kind of thing, I'm not saying you mustn't report it. Of course, it needs to be dealt with. You need to talk about it, right? It needs to be addressed for their own sake also, but make sure in your heart you let go for your own sake. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst. And thank you for this message. Thank you for the series that we've had on family life boosters. Lord, may you boost our family lives. Father, help us to aspire 
and to create wonderful families that will glorify you. Help us to dream wonderful families that will glorify you. We open our hearts to you and we say, God, come, come into our households, come into our families, come into our relationships, Lord, with siblings, with parents, uh, with children. Help us as we build great families in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. I want to encourage you throughout this period where we've got all sorts of restrictions at the moment here in South Africa. It's level four restrictions. I want to encourage you. Let's build virtually. Have a look at our website and you'll see some of our new virtual small groups. We want to connect. We want to build family life during this time. Come to our Zoom prayer meetings. They're so powerful. Get hold of us. We'll give you access. We'll give you the passcodes that you need and come. Maybe it's just once a week that you can attend, but we're literally now having them on a daily basis. I want to encourage you to build with your spiritual family and to keep building with your immediate families. God bless you. We love you and we're praying for you.